0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship and right relationship with the Lord. And uh, that is done through confession of sin, through silent prayer, and then uh, after a few moments I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for another opportunity to press on towards spiritual maturity. Our Lord said that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, an often misquoted statement, one taken out of context and one that is uh, often abused, but the truth that he refers to is your word. And it is only through the knowledge of your word that God the Holy Spirit is able to uh, mature us, to teach us, to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to take us to spiritual maturity. And so, Father, we pray that we might uh, this time might be useful to God the Holy Spirit, in maturing us. Father, we each face situations in life that are calamitous, situations in life that distract us, situations in life that are often hard. And sometimes these go on for quite some time, as they did in the life of Hannah. And we gain great encouragement and instruction from seeing how she responded to the difficulties that she faced. And may that uh, give us a a great challenge to follow in those footsteps, focusing upon who you are and what your plan is for mankind, and to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own uh, wishes, our own desires, and our own, uh, own plans that we might focus on the plan that you have for us, that you might be glorified. And Father, we pray that this time together will be very profitable spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we started with uh, the beginning of this hymn of Hannah's, this song of Hannah's, a psalm of uh, praise to God, a psalm of thanksgiving for the way God intervened in her life in order to bring about the blessing of a son, but it was more than that because as we saw last time... As you think through what she is saying and the way she structured this psalm and uh, the fact that she took a good deal of time to develop this under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, it shows that she recognizes that her life is obscure as it might appear as uh, out-of-the-way, backwoods, small-town wife in a family that was not uh, well-known that God would use her in order to bring about such a magnificent change in the history of Israel. And that's a pattern that can be true of any of us in the church age, even though we do not have the uh, heroes in the same way that the Old Testament did under the uh, theocracy of Israel. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a hero. Every believer is part of the spiritual combat that we face In spiritual warfare, in the angelic conflict, and the way in which we are trained is by God who brings different circumstances into our lives so that we can learn to trust in him and to depend upon him in those circumstances. And so that's exactly what's going on in this hymn is that Hannah is praising God. Or the way he has delivered her, and it's interesting for us to take the time to just just narrow our focus and look at how uh, her thoughts are developed. I've called this lesson the Rock because that's what comes out of uh, part of it in verse two. Nor is there any rock like our God. It's fascinating how that term is used of God. It's not just a metaphor for for God's omnipotence, although it is that. It is used almost as a name for God many times in the Old Testament. Now, if we look at the structure, as I put this up the last three weeks, I've modified it a little bit, but uh, last week, is the key idea is on the unique sovereignty of God. And that word unique is important because, as we'll see in the second verse today, that when we look at this phrase, no one is holy like the Lord, that our concept of holiness is often... Uh, distorted. We have turned this word into sort of a sanctimonious church uh, vocabulary that we don't uh, really understand. And as a result of that, people are often confused when they talk about this concept of holiness. And the word unique captures that one of the major semantic uh, nuances of this particular word, that he is a -a one-of-a-kind God. So Three times we have the focus on Yahweh's unique sovereignty in verses 1b uh, through 3, 6 and 7, and 8b through the first line of 10. And then we see that God overrides the plans of man in verses 4 and 5, and then in uh, verse 8. I have no idea why that happened. Okay, let's try this again. Okay. Computers have a mind of their own. And then we see that the end result is a focus on kingship. So how is God going to override the, the plans of man? Through the establishment of the divine monarchy. Uh, we can think about this in relation to Psalm 2, a psalm we've studied many times that begins with a picture of how the armies of man are arrayed against Yahweh and his Messiah. And how does, what does God do? He overthrows the leaders of men, the kings of men, and establishes the divine rule upon the earth. So, even in the structure, we see this developing a very significant theme that is laid out throughout the scripture. Now, in the first part of this section, uh, at the very beginning where we looked last time, we see a focus on joy. Hannah Hannah prayed, and as we look at the parallelism here, as I've highlighted it in the uh, color coding here the the verbs here all relate to joy. Uh, my heart rejoices in the Lord, my heart is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies, or my mouth is open. This is the idea that that she is uh, speaking about. Uh, her her victory over her enemies, and that is again is expressing part of the idea of of uh, being exalted. See uh, the way we translated that la- last time. I loudly denounce my enemies, or speak boldly against my enemies, is an expression of her exaltation uh, in the Lord. And then we have that last line: because I rejoice in your. In your salvation, now I want you to notice something just as we go back and review this a little bit that you have a first person singular pronoun used four t- five times in this verse, "My heart, my horn, I smile, I rejoice," and this is the last time we see a focus on on Hannah. Uh, this is one of the things that we find often in the Psalms is when the psalmist starts with their own circumstances, they quickly shift focus to God. That's something that should be evident in our, in our prayers, that our focus should be not on our problems and the negative circumstances or challenges or whatever is going on in our life, but we should put our focus and our attention upon the Lord. The the key idea here of rejoicing and exalting, and then the opening of the mouth as denouncing the enemies as in a way in which uh, God is is praised uh, expresses the is an expression of the mental attitude that Hannah has because and that's the last line, and in, in Hebrew poetry we have the rhyming of, of ideas. It's always fun to go through and to look at the text and identify the different kinds of parallelism. And what we have in that the first two lines there, my heart rejoices in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord, we have an example of synonymous parallelism. Uh, it's, then we have what is called a, um, a, a step parallelism, that develops from that, that because the heart and the horn is exalted in the Lord, uh, I, I then do something. I smile at my enemies. I denounce my enemies. I speak boldly against my enemies. And it takes, it takes the thought to a climax, to a climax. So this is called a climactic parallelism. And as you notice the way I've color coded this, we have, uh, we have the green for the first person pronouns, then we have the Lord in blue, we have the main verbs here in uh, red, which shows their uh, general parallelism, but then we have a totally new idea at the end, I rejoice at your salvation, that the way the thought is moving is to that last thought, that she is rejoicing at at that salvation, and that salvation is not the salvation from sin, she's not looking at the cross. She's not talking about salvation from personal sin. She's looking at deliverance from our trials and tribulations, her specifically, which is that she was barren, couldn't have any children, but also because God is the one who, through the deliverance that he gave to her, is going to deliver Israel. He's going to deliver the nation, and he will do that through Samuel and his ministry as a prophet, and ultimately through the second king that he anoints, who is David, who will deliver the nation from the oppression from the Philistines. And the point that we see here again and again is that only God's solution is the viable solution. This gets paralleled at the end, developed a little more. We have, uh, the, the statement, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. That's the, I will denounce my enemies. It, it's parallel to that third stanza. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That's how God brings about, ultimately will bring about deliverance because he will destroy his enemies. And he does that in the last line, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that last phrase, exalting the horn of his anointed, is parallel to verse one. So we see how well this is structured together, how well this is put together, putting the focus and attention upon God is the one who solves our problems. Without God, there's no real solution to problems. And this is something we have to, uh, we have to emphasize. So we did this. I looked at the words. That were used there, and my heart rejoices. The word "alots" meaning to exalt, to be glad, it's to be excited about how God has intervened in uh, in our life and what He has done. And one of the ways in which um, uh, we have this focus is on the character of God, on who He is. And that he is the one who exalts us. The second second line is, my horn is exalted at my enemy. exalted in the Lord. And this idea is picked up in a number of verses I looked at last time. But Psalm eighteen two also uses this phrase related to the horn of my salvation. Putting both of those ideas together uh, from the first uh, from that first verse, this also shows that Psalm eighteen borrows heavily here. David's Psalm and Psalm eighteen is borrowing heavily from the language and the doctrines that are encapsulated in Hannah's psalm in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And that's, again, important to see how this, this psalm connects to many subsequent uh, statements in Scripture, uh, later psalms, and even some things when we get into the New Testament. And so it's important to see how that in, in the progress of Revelation, things that are said earlier are developed as you go through the scriptures. Again, that emphasizes the unity of the Bible, that this is not just written uh, disjunctively where one person's doing something, another person's doing something else, but behind it you have God, the Holy Spirit, who's working and pulling and tying all of these things, all of these things together. We have uh, the word ravam, uh, ravam rather, a room, uh, that is translated exalt. That's picked up again at the uh, several times towards the end, indicating that the theme is God's, uh, the joy that God gives each and every one of us. As I concluded last time, I pointed out from Ephesians 6.12 that we're all in a war. God's enemies are our enemies, and we are targets in the angelic conflict. And none of us get away from that. We we live suffering. When we think about sufferings. There's two basic reasons that we suffer. One is we suffer because of something we do. And the other is we suffer unjustly because of the way things are. And then we can break down those two categories. But when we think about suffering because of what we do, we suffer because we sin. And that brings its own uh, natural negative consequence We suffer because we sin, and God enhances the natural negative consequences with divine discipline. And then we suffer because we live in a fallen, corrupt environment. So we suffer because we live in the devil's world. We suffer because we're associated with fallen uh, creatures who make bad decisions, and we suffer as a consequence of those bad decisions. And then we suffer simply because we live in a corrupted world in a corrupted body, and so we 're going to face a number of of uh, negatives simply because of that that corruption and that brings about storms like we had last night, which brings about flooding it brings about natural disasters, but a lot of these are uh, can also be just because of other other people so We live in a fallen world. There's always a battle going on, and the battle is not the one we think it is on the surface level where we're struggling with other people. But as Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So he uses these... um, Uh, terms, uh, principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual hosts, as sort of a description of the hierarchy within the ranks of the demonic uh, hosts, the fallen angels. And so ultimately behind what we see going on in the various realms of social interaction on the planet, whether it's politics or whether it's family or whether it's in business, whatever it may be. There's also the influence, the negative influence in the spiritual realm from demon influence. Now, demon influence really isn't this sort of superstitious mystical idea where you have demons sort of reaching in and tweaking people's minds. But demon influence comes from, I, does come from ideas, and those ideas are related to our own sin nature. Our own sin nature seeks to advance its own cause. Our our sin nature is focused on uh, promoting its own agenda, and that it mirrors the original sin of Satan in eternity past. He wanted to be like God. That was his agenda. And so the focal point of sin is always promoting self over against God. This is evidenced in the, the, the verb that's repeated five times in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, 12 through 14, the five I wills of Satan. I will, I will, I will, I will, culminating in his final statement, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God. It was all about his agenda and what uh, what he wanted. And so we live on a planet where we have, uh, you know, seven million or seven billion people rather who all want to be their own God, who all want to advance their own agenda. And they, in that thinking, they are imitating and following the thinking of Satan. That's one form of demon influence. You have other forms of demon influence in the promotion of different ideas uh, philosophical ideas and religious ideas, political ideas that are all contrary to, to the Word of God. So ultimately the source is a spiritual struggle. Now that's important to understand because so often when we get wrapped up and caught up in, uh, in negatives in our own life, in problems, adversity that we face, we want to look at it at the surface, and this is a problem with a person. This is a problem with the system. This is a problem with a politician. This is a problem with, with um, something on the material level. And the real problem that Paul points out here goes beyond that. The ultimate cause of all these surface problems that we deal with is a spiritual problem. Therefore, the ultimate solution is a spiritual solution. Now, that doesn't mean that if you are having problems at work with other people that you don't need to somehow address that through uh, personal conver- conversation or confrontation with that individual. It doesn't mean that you don't sit down and talk to them. It doesn't mean that sometimes you don't have, might not have to go to another level and talk to a supervisor or a boss or management about what what the problem is. But ultimately, the battle is not at that level. The battle is at a higher level, a spiritual level, and so the solution is a spiritual solution. And if we don't get the spiritual solution in place, then the other solution becomes often an empty solution. And I'm using that example because I want to draw an analogy and a parallel with what happens in the political realm. We are in the most politicized environment that I've ever seen in my life in this country. And from a study of history, I, I think there have been some other times in the history of this nation, maybe two or three, that have been uh, pretty p- politicized as well. And um, uh, we just know more about it now because of the uh, instantaneous nature of, of modern communication. But the battle ultimately is a spiritual battle. It is always a spiritual battle. And one of the principles that we know from Scripture is that the kingdoms of man always run downhill. No matter how good they might be at at their pinnacle of power, They always deteriorate and degenerate because they are the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of man is run by fallen creatures. Again, that's no excuse for becoming uninvolved or disengaged from the process. But we have to be careful not to become so caught up with the proce- with the political process that we forget that the ultimate solution is a spiritual solution. And if we don't change people internally in this country, if we don't change the culture, because the culture that we have today is not the culture that we had a hundred years ago or the culture that we had a hundred years before that. That culture has been transformed through uh, the rejection of the gospel and the rejection of biblical truth. And if, even if all of the Supreme Court justices and all of the um, other court justices throughout the land started ruling constitutionally, it wouldn't change the hearts of the people. And the hearts of the people have made the same mistake that the hearts of the people did in the time of the judges, the time of Samuel, is that they are, uh, they've are they rejected the authority of God and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And so we could elect all of the best politicians that you can think of and we could have all the judges ruling the right things and this country would still be in a state of collapse because the people are in a state of collapse. And unless you change the hearts of people, you're not going to change that. And the reason that we have the government problems that we have and the systemic problems that we have socially is a result of sin. It's a result of that collapse. So the point is always brought back in Scripture that the ultimate battle is over spiritual truth. And that's the solution, whether you're talking about politics or whether you're talking about problems you have at work, problems you have in your family, or whether you're just talking about your problems and my problems, the spiritual solution is the only solution. And so Paul describes that as putting on the full armor of God. And as that's described in Ephesians chapter 6, that's basically taking a stand on the truth of God's word and letting that work itself out in our own life. A parallel passage to that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. And there Paul, again, is trying to deal with a very uh, personal problem, a problem that involved personal attacks and personal rejection from the congregation in Corinth. He, Paul actually wrote four letters. Most scholars think it was three or four letters to the Corinthians. There was one between 1st and 2nd Corinthians and probably one after that, but only 1st and 2nd Corinthians were uh, given in such a way as they were to be re, uh retained and preserved as scripture. So Paul says to them, I beg that to you, I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. What he's basically saying there is he doesn't want to just get in their face and ream them out for the errors that they have committed. He, he doesn't want to uh, create a divisive situation. And but he does characterize those who have opposed him as people who are claiming that he is walking according to the flesh that that the opposition was saying, Paul really isn't spiritual enough. Paul is just uh, walking according to the sin nature, and he's causing division by the doctrines that he is teaching what's interesting to note and i 've had this criticism by uh, people once or twice over the years that i pay a little too much attention at times to false doctrines false teaching what people are teaching that is a violation of the word problem with that is we li- they, they don't realize a that their criticism is the result of living in this Uh, in this culture that we live in where everything needs to be positive and nobody needs to be critical. And we have a whole generation of millennials that have come up who believe that anything that you say that's critical of someone is wrong, that's inherently wrong. You're just being judgmental. You're being self-righteous. You never say anything that's negative about anybody. Well, let's just take the Bible and throw it away because God says something negative about everybody on almost every page. He picks on a lot of people. It is extremely negative and judgmental coming from from the Lord. When we get into the New Testament, you start looking at these epistles, and you look at Romans, and you look at 1 Corinthians, and you look at Galatians, and even, even the more positive ones, Ephesians and the others, nearly every one of them has at its core the uh, dealing with and straightening out a congregation with some doctrinal aberration some untruth some falsehood that has taken hold in that congregation nearly every one of these epistles is written to correct theological and doctrinal error And so if you fail to juxtapose the truth of God's word with the popular error that's infiltrating congregations today, then a pastor is failing in his job because part of what the pastor's job is, is to protect the sheep from the wolves that come in deceived as sheep. And that applies to their teaching and what comes out of their mouth. And so the role of the pastor is to help develop the critical thinking skills of the people in the pew. It's not his job to, to pat them on the back and tell them that their, their superficial thoughts are going to get them by. They have to learn to think, think critically about the circumstances. And this is a sad thing because we've got such a watered-down education system uh, in many places, in many areas in this nation and uh, n- never more obvious than at the collegiate level where there is very little critical thinking taught at least even when when i was in college i had a professor and i ended up taking about five courses from him and i last time i saw him i had an argument with him over the documentary hypothesis and mosaic authorship of genesis he still didn't want to agree with me, but at least I had something to say because when I first had him in Western civilization, he was throwing out all this stuff about, about the authorship of the Pentateuch and that Moses really couldn't have written anything and all of these arguments that come out of Protestant liberalism, and I didn't have a clue how to answer any of those things, but I knew I needed to. There was something in me that said, how can I be a self-respecting Christian? If I can't answer the kinds of issues that are raised by, by the opposition, we have to develop critical thinking skills. And, and he re, you know, to his credit is that what he really wanted was for students to challenge him. To teach, because he, and as I got to know him, he really wanted students to, um, to develop critical thinking skills, whether they agreed with him or not. That was, he was more of a classic liberal. A classic liberal really wanted you to think on your own and uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't interested in brainwashing you necessarily with progressivism. But they really wanted freedom, which is where the word liberal and liberty come from, is true freedom of thought, and to teach students how to think critically. And uh, he he really imposed that on us as we um, uh, as we came through those courses. I've gone back after I've done doctoral work. I've gone back and read some of the books that he required us to read in freshman and sophomore history classes, and I still struggle to understand them. And I've spent a lot more years reading a lot more on those topics. He was really challenging. He, this was a guy typical of someone who's just finished their Ph.D. He was really having us read and study at a level that was more of a graduate level because it had been a while since he had, he had been an undergraduate and thought at that level. But he was, he, he challenged us to think critically, and that's what we have to do. And so. Paul emphasizes this, that that thinking and how we think is part of the battle. He goes on and says, here he's facing this opposition from people who are challenging him because they're lying about him. They're saying he's walking according to the flesh. And he says, no, for though we walk in the flesh. Notice the difference. It's not according to. He's a different preposition. He goes from kata to in. So though we walk in the flesh, that is in our humanity, As fallen creatures, though we walk in the flesh in our human uh, corporeal body, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, see, that is what he says over in Ephesians 6. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. So ultimately, the battle is not to be confused with the bat, with the battle the way you would engage according to the flesh or according to the sin nature. We don't operate on the same principles of human viewpoint that the world operates on. See, as you've heard me teach many times, we have in the scriptures this emphasis on different spiritual skills or problem solving devices that, that that we use in order to overcome. Overcome adversity. There, the term, phrase problem solving devices is a really interestingly crafted phrase. A lot of people without a military background don't necessarily understand what the word problem means. In the military, a word problem is any form, uh, in any situation that you have to think through and create a solution to. Okay so you ha- you have a uh, any kind of a, you're presented with a set of circumstances that are uh, that that you have to work your way through, which means you have to solve that to, to the average person. Uh, They think of a problem as just a difficulty, as just something negative that's happening. It may not be anything negative at all. It may be just a set of circumstances you've got to evaluate and work through in order to resolve. It can be positive. It can be negative. And so that's the idea of of a a problem-solving device. What the world offers us when facing life is nothing more than management skills. And if you think about it, that's the phrase you'll often hear in pop psychology, is is management skills. We need to learn how to manage our stress. But what the scripture says is, no, we live above the stress by trusting in God. We're not going to do what the world says to do and just manage the stress that we're faced with. We're going to live above it so that that stress doesn't impact us at all because Uh, We're going to be like Peter and walk on the water and not take our eyes off the waves or the adversity and sink below the water. So we have to stand above. This is what Paul is talking about. The way in which Christians engage the challenges in their life is different, categorically, qualitatively different from the way unbelievers address and engage the problems in their life. So he says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Now that's just the same word uh, related to the flesh. It's not the product of the sin nature. So there's always going to be a challenge in our lives as to whether we're going to handle whatever the circumstances of our life are on the basis of our sin nature or on the basis of the principles of the word of God. And it's either one or the other. One honors God, one doesn't. One's walking by the Spirit, the other's walking according to the flesh. And so he goes on to say, these weapons of our warfare, those, these are the spiritual skills that we studied in Scripture. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. He uses a military image here of pulling down and destroying a defensive posture, a defensive fortification. Last night, if you were at all aware of what was on TV, or if you had power to watch what was on TV, my power went out like two minutes after I started watching it, uh, there was a sh- new show that came on the History Channel. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Texas Rising. Okay, now I still don't know whether it's good, bad, indifferent, because we've had power problems last night. I would wait until I have four different chopped recordings of that on my DVR. So I've got to just wait till tonight and see, see if it's up there on, uh, on demand to watch. But at the beginning, it started off with the defeat at the Alamo, and you see the piles of burning rubble, and you see the broken ladders up against the wall and the torn down walls. That's the imagery that you have behind this is tearing down a fortification, tearing down a a defensive position. And that's what we have. We've created as human beings a defensive position in our soul to try to make life work on our own terms. We've created extensive and sophisticated uh, rationalizations, philosophies, and religions which uh, support our human viewpoint thinking over against the divine viewpoint thinking of God. And these are pictured by Paul as a defensive position that we've constructed around our soul to keep God out. And what we have to do is we have to pull down those fortifications. That takes thought and that takes effort. You don't just go, go against a defensive position and just wish that the winds will come up and blow it away or that by being here all of a sudden those walls are going to fall down. Jericho only happened once in history. There has to be a, there has to be procedure, there has to be thought, there has to be a technical skill to destroy those strongholds and scripture shows how we are to do that, to tear down the human viewpoint in our soul. It's a conscientious conscientious effort. So. We're to be mighty in God according to the principle of the Word, which means we have to know the Word. We have to really understand it and practice it and evaluate our own thinking so that we come to understand what is going on between our ears, because that's where real spiritual warfare takes place. It's not like charismatic Pentecostal theology teaches, going out and doing battle with the devil somewhere or casting demons out of Christians. That's your real problem. It is... Being engaged in destroying the, the, uh, false thought forms that are already, uh, that have already taken root in our soul. And how do we do this? Look at how, how we do this. We pull down strongholds and then that next verb is casting. And this represents a participle and should be understood as a participle of means. We do it by casting down arguments. How do you destroy an argument? With another argument. What is an argument? An argument is a series of of rational thoughts that have been put together, moving from a major thesis to a minor thesis to a conclusion. It's thinking about a situation. It's applying reason. Christianity is not against reason. It is against the independent use of, of reason apart from the Word of God or the authority of God. So we have to we have constructed in our soul whether you're consciously aware of it or not certain arguments and rationalizations to defend why we are going to do things the way we want to do them and why God is wrong. And what we have to do is construct arguments in our soul against that. And those arguments come from where? They come from scripture, from passages that you've memorized And that you have incorporated into your thinking so that you can juxtapose the the reason of God to the reason of our sin nature. So to cast down arguments, we have to know biblically based divine viewpoint arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And here you have the word every. Anything left out? No. That's Paul's way of saying any kind of thought that elevates itself against Christianity or against the Bible. And if you just take the time to observe a lot of uh, things that are on television, it's a lot of things that come across in our culture, there are a lot of thoughts that are are out there targeted against biblical Christianity and biblical values. So we have to understand what those arguments are. That means we have to read, we have to study, and we have to think through things. Every now and then I get a, a little chance to do some reading, and I've noticed recently that, that I've, I've gone back and I've read things I've read a long time ago, and I read them and I think, wow, that's interesting. I don't really remember reading that. I remember certain things from this book, but I don't remember that that was in this book. But somehow those ideas were incorporated into my thinking. Did I get this from that book? And the book I'm reading right now is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which has a lot of great material in it in terms of thinking through the, uh, from a biblical viewpoint, the rational basis for biblical truth. And it's uh, very interesting to read some of the ways in which he handles some, uh, some different things. But it takes time to think through these arguments and rationalizations, unbelievers, and pagans uh, use against the knowledge of god but it involves thought it involves thinking i'm reading two or three other books at the same time and i am only reading through three or four pages at a time and i have to stop and think about what it is that i'm reading it's not simple work and it's not just something that pastors should do because we all have the same problems going on in our soul where we have to learn to think through what is going on, what what is the world saying, how is that impacting me, and how does the how am I drawn to respond from my sin nature, but what's the counter from from the Word of God? So we are to be we we uh, destroy these strongholds by casting down arguments, which means we need to understand these arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So the other thing we see here is that there's knowledge of God and there's everything else. There's only two ways to look at things, God's way and the creature's way. And the creature's way is reflective of either Satan's thought, demonic thought, or human thought, whether we call it human viewpoint or satanic viewpoint or demonic thinking. It all represents the same thing, independence from God. So we have to instead bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That just doesn't refer to the content of thought. The content of thought is, well, you may be lusting after something. So you may be thinking in terms of, of monetary lust, and you're dreaming about what you can buy with all that money you're going to win from the lottery, or you're thinking in terms of sexual lust, and you have pornographic thoughts, or you're thinking in terms of, of lust for uh, alcohol or drugs or something like that. So you're thinking about when you're going to get your next high or your next buzz or something like that. That's the content of your thinking. This goes beyond that. This is not only talking about the content of your thinking, but the structure of your thinking. Because you can structure your thinking in in ways that will always end up with anti-biblical and anti-God conclusions because of the way that you have structured your thought. And and that's like someone coming up to you and asking you a question, and that question sets the structure of your thought. Someone says, have you quit beating your wife yet? That question structures a certain way of thinking, and if you answer it one way or the other, you're caught in a trap. There was a similar type question that was asked and played out in the media over the last couple of weeks. I think the first uh, reporter uh, asked a question of Jeb Bush that uh, if he had it to do over again, would he invade Iraq like his brother did? And, and he, he fell into the trap of a hypothetical. He should have said, I'm not even, I'm not going to address that because the question is, is bogus and it's unclear. He should have avoided that structure. But once he accepted the validity of the structure of that question, whatever he said was going to be a problem. And then I think it was the following uh, Sunday that uh, Chris Wallace was interviewing um, Marco Rubio on Fox News and asked him the same question. Rubio tried to restructure it, but it kept coming back to the origi- original structure. And the point I'm making here is if we think according to certain sh- non-biblical structures, we will always end up with non-biblical conclusions and non-biblical answers. And it's hard. This isn't easy. Uh, it's hard for sheep. Sheep's not a complimentary term, as I always say. I had a professor in seminary, and I always remember one one thing he said. There were many things he said that I didn't want to remember uh, because he wasn't one of the better profs, but he said one thing that was was true. It's hard to think. It's even harder to think about how you think. And that's enough to put us all to sleep. So... When we look at First Samuel 2, Hannah is telling us by the structure of this psalm how we should think about these challenges that we face in life. And she shifts from verse 1 talking about my heart, my horn, I smile, I rejoice, to talking exclusively about God and what he has done. In verse 2 she says, she says, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, if we stop and we take a little time uh, to think about the structure of this, even in English, it can become pretty apparent what the word holy means. First of all, if you understand this is synonymous parallelism, then holy is parallel to what words in the second stanza? Okay, if Lord is parallel to you, then holy is parallel to what? None like you, none beside you. Holy is a word that that is so loaded with a lot of religious connotation And religious usage, we forget what it means. It's the Hebrew word kadosh is the verb, kadosh is the is the noun, and it means to be set apart to the service of God. But most people think that holy has something to do with moral purity. Now, there were a lot of things that were designated by this word in the Old Testament. The furniture in the in the uh, tabernacle was called holy. Is, can furniture be morally pure? No. Nope. Can it be morally or uneth- can it be morally impure or unethical? No. So it's it's set apart to the service of the Lord. Though it is distinct and uniquely set apart to God's service, it is not to be used for everyday uh, things. The uh, eating utensils, for example, would only be used to eat the feasts at, at a certain time. So. Holy we see just in the English is parallel to the idea that that uh, of uniqueness. There's none beside you. And then this is further developed in the third line, nor is there any rock like our God. Notice how rock is used there almost as a name or synonym for God or for any God. You would say there's no God like our God. And so the Hannah says there's no rock. Like our rock, rock has that connotation of strength, of power, of protection, and something that is uh, uh, totally stable. So, as we look at the word here uh, in terms of of, uh, holiness, it emphasizes the uniqueness of God—that He is distinct from everything else. I was talking today with with a couple, and um, at lunch. And we were talking about the importance of, of understanding who God is, especially in evangelism, that don't just jump into the Gospels, that it's important to start in Genesis and not in John, because when you start talking to people about, uh, well, you need to trust in Jesus, He's the Son of God." Well, what in the world does that mean to somebody with zero background in the Bible? We see in Acts that when the apostles were talking to those with a Jewish background, they started with Abraham. But when they were talking to Gentiles, they started with creation. Because only in creation do you see how the God of the Bible is unique and distinct. None of the other gods and goddesses are creators. Zeus, Apollo, uh, none of the gods and goddesses in the Indian uh, pantheon ever created ex nihilo. They never created something out of nothing. But the God of the Bible is unique because he is the God who created everything out of nothing. So that makes him a unique, a distinct God, and he's not just another God. And often when you are talking to people and you start talking about Jesus, they just want to add Jesus to all the other good luck charms and gods and goddesses in their life. And so we have to make this Uh, clear that what the Bible teaches is this distinction with God that he is totally distinct and and what Hannah is saying here is because God is this rock then he is the one who can handle any problem or any difficulty that we throw at him and we dare not trust in man this is uh, substantiated in a number of passages as we close out tonight let's just turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Over, these are the big books, the big prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. J- Daniel. Jeremiah chapter 17. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is challenging the uh, people in Judah, the kingdom of Judah, not to trust in human solutions to solve the problem that's coming their way, which is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They are not to look to Egypt or look to their military technology. Or look to anything else to deliver them because God has already promised that he is going to bring judgment, uh, judgment upon them. And, uh, and as a result of that, there's no hiding. There's no place then than they can go. And so God expresses this in an indictment starting in verse five. He said, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. See, think about this in terms of what Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are not to war according to the flesh. You know, we don't rely upon the flesh. That is the the strategies, the tactics, the techniques, the, the, the uh, uh, the, the management programs that are put out from human viewpoint. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Ultimately, we have to be involved in politics. It's part of good citizenship. It's part of our responsibility under the Constitution to be involved politically. But we dare not get caught up in the thinking that the election of one political party or another is going to ultimately solve the problem because the problem is the human heart that is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it, know it, and unless there's a spiritual solution, there won't be any kind of permanent political solution. It ha- didn't happen with uh, Israel. It didn't happen with Judah. It's certainly not going to happen with us. And so we, we have to recognize it's sort of a, a, um, a dual way of thinking. We have to be engaged because that's our responsibility, and we can make an impact, and we should make an impact. But on the other hand, we should not put our ultimate hope in politicians or in governments or in the system because they with, with living, especially in a pagan relativistic society, that's always going to fall apart. And so this is the indictment. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. The Lord is always the ultimate solution. It doesn't matter whether you're facing a problem. Related to your own internal sin nature control, dealing with various lust patterns and temptations in your own soul, or whether it's dealing with other external problems caused by other people, our heart has to be focused on the Lord. Now, the word heart in the Hebrew is simply a word that relates to our soul. Sometimes it relates to primarily to the thinking of our soul, which is the majority of uses but sometimes it refers just as a synonym to the heart, the center of man, that our, especially our thinking needs to be focused on the Lord. Now, the person who trusts in the flesh is compared in verse 6, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. See, the contrast is going to be with the man who trusts in the Lord, who's like a tree. So the contrast is be- between just some small shrub. If you've been to Israel, the shrubs in the desert aren't very big. They're, they're very small. Uh, may be a foot tall, if that. And so they're not consequential. And that's what uh, Jeremiah is saying. Uh, he shall be like a shrub of the desert and shall not see good when it comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. The life of the person who's dependent upon human viewpoint is going to be a life that is devoid of life. A life that, that just is a counterfeit life. It's living in places that are parched, places where, where it's the salt desert. It's not a pleasing place to be. Some of you who went to Israel this last year and we went across the uh, Negev, uh, can remember how parched that desert is down there, uh, in, in those particular areas, especially down south of Beersheba. In contrast, Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Now, that word for blessed isn't quite the word happy. Some people have translated it happy. Happiness is such an ephemeral emotion. It's more the word content. Someone who is satisfied with life the way it is. Someone who's content. Someone who is stable in their emotions. They have a stable joy. It's not an emotional happiness, but is a stable joy and contentment uh, with life and a tranquility of their soul because they are resting in God. They are trusting in the Lord and our hope, our confidence is in the Lord. And then he's compared in verse eight, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, And will not fear when heat comes. Heat is external adversity, difficulty, challenges, uh, tribulation, suffering. So it borrows from the imagery of an earlier psalm, Psalm 1, that talks about the person who meditates on God's word day and night will be like a tree planted by the waters. It grows full, it grows rich, it provides shade and blessing by association for others. And so we have the same imagery here, that the person who uh, has their thinking shaped by the word of God does not suffer a loss of contentment or happiness or stability when adversity comes. Uh, But its leaf will be green. It will not be anxious in the year of drought or in the year of the flood, which is what we're having today. We've had the years of the drought the last four or five years, and now we're all being flooded out. It won't be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So we go through the prosperity test and we go through the adversity test, but we're stable because our focus is not on the circumstances, but is on the God of the circumstances who is the holy God of Israel. There's none beside him, and he is compared to a rock. Now we'll stop there, and we'll come back in two weeks after I get back from uh, the canyon, and we'll continue with verse 2, understanding the significance of this this portrayal of God's character as unique, one-of-a-kind, and related to being a rock. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and reflect on these things, and we ask that you help us to understand that uh, the, the, the victory that we have is only in you, and that we are cursed if we trust in man or the uh, the solutions of man, but we are to trust in your solutions, trust in your word, and let your word shape and strengthen Uh, our souls so that we can withstand whatever adversity, whatever difficulty and challenges come our way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.